What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today. Today, I'm talking with Peter Levels, the founder of Nomadlist. Finally, <laughs> Peter, I'm so glad to have you on here. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Do you know you are the first person that I ever reached out to to interview for Andy Hackers? I did like a fake one with myself and my girlfriend, and then I reached out to you. I DM'd you on Twitter. Yeah, and it took so it, it took a while. Yeah, it took a long time. Yeah, well, I think like your first response was like, "I don't do interviews anymore." <laughs> You're like, oh, that's that's great. Sounds like a cool site. No, because <laughs> because it, it was getting really crazy, and um, I had a lot of interviews where, and I think it's a common thing now. You have an interview, and then the journalists they rewrite the entire thing you said. And it happened to me like so many times. And then the article was really maybe not positive or they just changed my answers. And I was like, that's not what I said. And then I got really burned out from like doing interviews. And I was like, well, why do I need journalists or podcasts? I'll just write a blog post and then I can control what I'm saying, you know? Yeah, I think it's uh, people are always trying to spin a narrative around whatever it is that you say because you know they need to raise the stakes they need to get more eyeballs and so like whatever you say well, they need to get page views right and and the, the truth is very boring and if you go on twitter you see you follow everybody you see that the truth of startups is mostly boring where you just you ship things right like we're shipping and every day we make a small feature that's boring and only the sum of it sounds interesting but it's a daily boring thing so that stuff doesn't sell on the media right yeah, it really doesn't. I mean, you need to be like backstabbing somebody or you need to be like going down in flames or you need to like have some sort of like fiery passion, belief. Like you can't just be doing the normal thing. Otherwise, you're going to change what you say. Yeah, but that's why I like Indie Hackers because what you're doing is really special. You're telling transparent, true stories. They might be negative or positive, but they're definitely real because you show all the data and stuff. I think that's what I think you like were doing that well before Indie Hackers started too because I think the reason that I created Indie Hackers was in large part reading like the comments that you would leave on Hacker News and the stuff that you would post on Twitter where you would just say, like, here's what's going on behind the scenes or here's how I felt when this happened. Uh, so No Medlist was a huge inspiration for indie hackers in a lot of ways. And I think that's why I was like, all right, the first person <laughs> I got to get on here is Peter Levels. So you didn't, you didn't do the interview, but then you, you said it would be okay if I like kind of clipped together my own interview. <laughs> so I went around finding things that you'd said. Dude, I sound so arrogant, but I'm not arrogant, but it's just, you get a lot of, you get it too now. You get so many DMs and it's just insane. And you uh, you need to, because if I answer everything like, oh, sure, let's do it. I won't be able to ship anymore and I go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to keep your eye on the ball. I mean, I didn't think you were arrogant at all. I, I was just happy that you let me do the interview, like this fake interview with you. And then when I launched, you were the most effusive person. You're like, this is awesome. And maybe that's because the interview was clips from your blog posts. So it was your actual words rather than the contortions of a journalist. I don't know. My whole personal philosophy is in the actors, pretty much. It's, I'm not. I'm not asking. It's just true. It's just exactly that. Well, you are certainly one of the most inspiring indie hackers out there for me, and I think for a lot of other people as well. I wish I had prepared more for this podcast. We scheduled it kind of last minute, but on the flip side, like we also had like months of preparation <laughs> where we said that we were going to do it, and we just hadn't gotten around to it. But I'm sure we're going to have like a ton of things to talk about because you do a ridiculous number of things. I mean, I think probably the best analog to you is Mubs, Mubashar Iqbal, who's another prolific maker. Oh, I love Mubs, yeah. yeah. He's a great guy. I had him on the show. He's, he's more prolific than me. He's nuts. He's like releasing a new project every other week. Yeah, it's amazing. Product Hunt finished their November hackathon about a month ago, and I think he had four, maybe five different entries to this one hackathon. It's insane. And I feel strong competition with him. He's a really nice guy, and uh, he's the number one Product Hunt maker. He shipped 44 products. He has, I think, 25,000 upvotes. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know, I'm like number eight or something. And then 
I want to be number one because I'm competitive. But it's so I told Mops I'm gonna ship uh, ten products, so I get about ten thousand votes, and then I'll be bigger than you. And then he's like, well. But you think I'm not going to ship anything anymore? <laughs> so I think now we have a competition going. You might going. have to sabotage him. Um, yeah, he's just, he's, he's so fast. I mean, he was Product Hunt's maker of the year last year, and I think you had the title the year before that. But the primary difference between the two of you guys, in my mind, is that for Mubs, this is more of a hobby. So he comes home from work, and he builds things for fun. Uh, he doesn't really charge for them. Whereas you are primarily focused on building revenue-generating businesses. So you charge for pretty much everything that you make, and I consider you more of a prolific bootstrapper than a prolific maker. I don't know if that's the best way to describe you, but it's kind of how I envision it. How would you describe yourself? I think Mops does some studio, like for startups, he does work for them. Yeah, it's really cool. No, but for me, it's like um, I was working in a call center, a really shitty job for me back then. And I had to sell these financial products to people and I didn't really like it. And I knew I didn't want to do that kind of job again. So for me, it's always been like I need to make money to pay my bills or I won't be able to do what I want to do. Right. Like, and, and I don't really want to work for other people. I don't want to get instructions for other people because I'm too stubborn. I always think like, I usually think generally that I think it better or something that my, my um, opinion is, is because of course it's my opinion. So of course it's better. Right. Uh, <laughs> for me at least. And uh, so I'm just very stubborn, stubborn person. And uh, in that respect, it's very hard for me to work for other people. It's also very luxury and it's a privilege. Right. But, so I need to make money. I need to charge people for money because I'm not raising venture capital. So that's why I'm, I'm always triggered when people on Twitter say, well, how dare you charge money for your website? It's like, come on, man. Like I'm, I'm working nonstop. 20, like all every day I'm working on my website to make it better. I make every little pixel, a little button, a little image and video, and I make everything and do the marketing. So come on, man, let me charge. I'm like a, I'm like a corner store and I charge for these sandwiches. Please pay for them when you like them so I can continue making them. Yeah, I think it's funny. People on the internet have like this a classic attitude of they're just so used to getting so many things for free from, I don't know, like, you know, VC funded companies put out things for free and other people on the internet do like open source stuff for free. Facebook, Google. Yeah. And so they're like, everything should be free. And then it's like one person's making something and it's like, actually, you know, I'm going to charge you. And honestly, like you get a lot of complaints, but it also works out surprisingly well. I mean, I know you're doing very well from a lot of the things that you've made and you've got a huge fan base of people who are more than happy to buy the stuff that you've made. And I think... No, and it's like, it's like let's just be honest, it's loads of money. It's like, the revenue is, is for me, ridiculously high. I think for any person with, with a salary, it's ridiculously high. And I save most of it. And I'm not embarrassed by it. I think it's, I, you know, it's, it's really hard work. And yeah, just charge, charging people helps. And you always get hate for charging. And I think that's one of the, that's actually one of the big things for starting makers, like newbie makers. They're really scared to charge. It keeps coming up. They, they like to make something and they spend weekends on it as a side project. And then when a lot of people start using it, you know, they'll charge like $2 or $3. And then like, no, no, you need to charge like maybe $30 a month because you can't even charge $10 because Netflix charges $10, but it's a billion dollar company. So it has a lot of high volume. You're a small maker. You maybe need to charge $30 a month or $100 a month if it's B2B, right? Yeah. Like you need to pay your bills. You need to pay your rent. Come on. Exactly. And for whatever reason, people get it backwards. So like, oh, I'm small. I can't charge more. Well, it's the exact opposite. Netflix can charge very little because they're taking advantage of economies of scale. When you're tiny, you can't do that. You have to charge more. Absolutely. Yeah. And what I learned in business school and what I learned there was the price is not about the cost. You need to decouple price from cost. Like what you put in as time is important, but what's more important is the value 
that a user gets from it. Like, how do you change the person's life? Does it does this does he save uh, or he or she does he she save two hours of work every day? Okay, what is her hourly rate? Two one hundred dollars. Okay, you saved her two hundred dollars. Then you could probably charge one hundred fifty dollars, right? Because the margin is then fifty dollars for her. It's like such an unnatural way for so many people to think. And I want to get into that, like, and talk about how you have put that to work and all the different things that you've launched. But let's like introduce yourself to people who don't know who you are. You've worked on like a ton of different apps. People might know you for one thing and not realize that you've made another thing that they love and that they use. So can you describe, I guess, kind of a breakdown of, I guess, your life today? You know, what are the things that you've made? What are the things that you're working on? And if you don't mind sharing, what's the financial breakdown of how much revenue your apps are generating? Okay, so my, my main things are uh, Nomad lists. It's kind of like a database of cities. I collected 1,000 cities in the world. And I collected all this data about like the weather and the internet speed. And I started because digital nomads, like I was a digital nomad in 2013. I wanted to travel and then I was working a little bit. I was like, okay, what, which cities can I go to that have fast internet? Because it was so important to have fast internet to work, right? And where it's kind of warm and where it's just kind of cheap because it didn't have a lot of money back then. So I made this website that's called Nomad List. And now it has almost a million users a month. Uh, the revenue is about, I get the range from 15 Fifteen thousand to twenty-five thousand dollars a month. It's mostly subscriptions or like memberships. So you can join the website and then you have access to all these social features to meet other digital nomads, remote workers, travelers. You can put all your travels in a profile. It's kind of like a social network for travelers and remote workers. And then I have another website called RemoteOK.io. I started that because I saw a lot of people around me. They wanted to become a nomad or work from home or do remote jobs. And it was very hard to find remote jobs back then because they were all dispersed on different job sites, like normal, regular, traditional job sites. So like, okay, I'll just aggregate. I use the APIs of all these job sites to, you know, kind of like use a. I, I wrote a function to see which job is actually remote, and I parsed some filter words or whatever. And then I took the job, put it on my site, and linked back to them to that site, so they would get traffic. And that worked really well. Then I started selling my own job posts on Remote OK, and that makes about. It ranged from like $5,000 to $10,000 a month just from job posts from people. I have a lot of these you know, side projects that don't really make money. Like I just released Hood Maps, which is a neighborhood mapping um, app. So people, uh, like I was, uh, I was in Amsterdam and my friend was going to visit Amsterdam and I'm, I'm from there. So she, she asked me like, where should I go in the city? And my problem was there's always people going to the tourist places in cities and they don't really get an idea of the real city. I was like, okay, I'll just draw you a map with colors. Like, this is a tourist area, it's red. This is the hipster area, it's yellow. And I sent it to her, and she said that was really useful because I could find a place where to go. And the areas were completely different. I was in very local areas in the hipster areas, and it was cool. So I made that into an app recently, and that works really well. That gets, like, I think uh, 400,000 users a month. Yeah, it's just a crowdsourced map, pretty much. So I have all these little side projects, but only Nomad List and Remote OK make the real money. That's a lot of stuff. Most people will never build even one of those apps. And you are, like rolling them out. <laughs> it seems like every year you've got an, another thing that's like... Yeah, over, over I think, two or three years. But I made a lot of stuff that's, that just disappeared because it just didn't get any traction. Like I think not, nine out of ten things didn't get traction. I want to talk about like all your failures. It's like my favorite thing to talk about. What what didn't get traction and why? And it's, it's funny, I think if... Uh, I want to have more people on to just talk about what failed, but it's really hard to do because people usually don't want to come on and just talk about a failure. But what's what's easy yeah, is no. I want to talk about because the thing is, I also I forget it because you forget when something is like painful. Or one of my biggest failures was my first project. It was called Tubelytics because back then I was a YouTuber. I had like a music channel for YouTube, 
and YouTube was paying me as one of the first partners in, in Holland and Europe. And I was getting like 1000 to 2000 3000 4000 dollars a month just from this music channel. And it was drum and bass music, like electronic music, but also house and techno and all these European kind of genres. But the problem was I had like 12 channels and I couldn't see the view count every day. I had to log into every account. So I was like, okay, I'll just scrape the API of YouTube and figure out like for myself, you know, like how many views am I getting a day? So the, the, Electro, the Electro House channel would get 20,000 views and then together all these channels would get 200,000 views a day. So I just wanted like a summer summing app. So I made that. Then I was like, okay, there's other, these YouTube networks were coming up back then, these multi-channel networks. And I was like, they can use it. So I made it into a real app. I spent way too much time working on it. I spent like a year working on it. Uh, I couldn't code. So I, <laughs> I, learned, I knew basic PHP from WordPress, right? From a, I had a WordPress blog before. I mean, I wasn't like completely new, but I was definitely, I didn't know anything about codes. So like properly, you know? So I learned like my SQL database and I made this analytics platform that would simply just connect to the API and get all the views for every single video you have for all your channels. So I did it for my channel. The database would fill up in like a week or something with like hundreds of thousands of rows. <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's a lot of data. <laughs> then Vice emailed me. They said, that's a cool platform. Can we use it? Like Vice Media, like super big. Yeah, that's huge. Like, oh my God, it's happening. So I enabled it for them. And then I got like millions of rows in my database. And my database was stalling and my server was stalling. And I had no idea what was happening. And I started getting problems like on YouTube, you will have few corrections. So you'll get 50,000 views. Let's say you start upload a video Monday, you get 50,000 views on Monday. And then on the Tuesday, you get another 25,000 views. So YouTube will only show back then the total views, which is 75,000 views. But then on Wednesday, it would sometimes correct the views if you count to like, okay, there was 30,000 fake views. So now you have 75,000 minus 30,000, which is, uh, I don't know, 30, whatever. But the problem was I would have to show the difference, right? But the difference would sometimes be negative because YouTube was correcting the data. So then Vice emailing me like, why is this a negative view count <laughs> on all our videos? And I'm like, I don't know. Like people are reverse watching. No, it's a stupid joke. But I didn't know. And um, I did know because it was YouTube wasn't giving me the data. So I emailed YouTube, can you please give the you know daily view count data? This story, we don't support it. So I thought maybe I can correct it with like data formulas. Anyway, it was just, it all started going to hell from there. Was Vice paying you for this? Not yet, no. But they wanted to pay. Um, they wanted to try it out and then see if they could pay. And then after like a month, they said, they just stopped responding. I was like, okay. And I, they didn't log in anymore. So they obviously didn't like it. And the funny thing is the guy who contacted me and used the advice emailed me two years later. Hey, I was the guy from Vice using TubeLytics, that app. Now I know you from like 12 startups thing and like startup bootstrapping startup world. And so we met again on the internet. That's really cool. It was like, it was total failure. And I spent a year of my time on it, on an app that doesn't work. <laughs> So how did you how did you feel at the end of that? I mean, were you not discouraged? Because I think a lot of people would be like, "All right, I'm done." No, I felt I felt like you know when you shower, you think about stuff always. For a year, I was only thinking about this app, and you know, every day was like a new problem. It was just horrible, and I I didn't know how databases worked. You know, every day I need to learn something new, and I was just okay. Just, I'm just gonna do this, and then after a year, I just gave up. And then my YouTube started stopping to make money, like it started decreasing my revenue. So my revenue was like. At peak, eight thousand dollars a month from YouTube ads, and then suddenly it was like one thousand, and it was dropping like by about, I would say two hundred dollars a month. So I knew that it would stop in about five months if we would go at the same rate. So I needed to find a job. 
So I started applying to jobs in Holland. This was just after I had been traveling for a year, been nomad for a year, and I, had to, I went back. And I was at my parents' house, sitting in the dinner table at 4 a.m. with coffee on my laptop, like depressed and super anxiety, panic attacks and everything. And my money was just decreasing and I was applying for jobs at Coinbase, but I wasn't a good enough developer because I was still just like the, the shitty PHP developer person uh-huh. that can barely do an MySQL database. <laughs> so how can I help with a Bitcoin platform in 2000, um, what was it, 2014? And that's when I did the 12 startups thing. I wrote a blog because I was blogging. I was travel blogging for my mom. So I'd been travel blogging all my travels that year for my mom because she wanted to read post photos. Look, I'll just write a blog about this situation. Like I need to build, I need to set a goal for myself because I knew my dad always said when you're depressed, you know, if you're clinically depressed, obviously you need to go to a psychiatrist, psychologist. But if you're, uh, if you were depressed like me, he said, you need to get a shovel from the garden and you need to get some sand and then you have a mountain of, you just start digging in the, in the ground and you take the sand and put it on a like little mini mountain. I know the English word. And then you put it back in and you keep doing that. And then slowly you'll start feeling happier. So it's like, okay, I need to do something. That was his point. You need to do something. I think most people in that situation, like you're kind of at a crossroads. We're like, okay, well, one thing I can do is get a job where I know I'm going to actually make money. And yeah, I might have to get better at programming to get the job that I want. And then the other side, you have this really risky decision, which is let's just keep doing startups. Even though this one failed after working on it for 12 years, how did you decide to take like the second path rather than like the more conventional one? Well, it wasn't even like stars. It was, it was like I, w- I was blogging this thing and the title was 12 projects in 12 months. And then for like a joke, I backspaced projects and I said startups because it was around the time that the word startups started changing a little bit. On Hacker News, there was more about talk about, a little more talk about bootstrap startups. Like I remember Patio 11, which is your friend also. Um, he was my idol. He's like the reason I'm doing all this. He never acknowledged my existence, unfortunately. But I know you're close <laughs> to him. <laughs> but he's, he's my big inspiration. Um, like super fanboy. Anyway, so I, I was reading his post and it was, that was bootstrap stuff. So I was like, well, it kind of does like a startup, right? So Backspace is 12 projects and I'll call it 12 startups. And there was a smart press trick later I found out. Like a, that's something the press could write about. From that point, that was like April 2014. Like just my life just changed. So what was 12 startups? Like how did it, how did it work exactly? It, sorry, yeah. So it was a blog I wrote. I was going to do one, one startup or one project a month, finish it, launch it, and just to force myself to learn this startup thing because I was so bad at it. And then I knew, because I spent one year on this TubeLytics app and it didn't work. So I was like, okay, I shouldn't spend so much time. I should do a little bit more like lean startup stuff, just ship and deploy and launch and validate. And my idea was, and this was, I think this is definitely new or my perspective on it was new, validate by launching. So you don't know if the app's going to work, but you need to launch it, and then you know if it's going to work. And you need to understand that most apps won't work. So that I knew. So I was like, okay, then I'll just do a lot, and I'll see what sticks, like throwing spaghetti on the wall. And then I started doing making one thing a month. It's cool how you're building off of all this knowledge and experience. What were some of the apps that you ended up making? The first thing was Play My Inbox, which was my friends. We were always chatting, and we were always, we were always emailing us each other songs. So I would log into their email, with a robot, and I would download the, I would check the URLs, and I would put it in a playlist. And I launched that, I think it was on Product Hunt, but I didn't even know Product Hunt back then, so somebody launched it for me. It was okay, like a lot of music journalists started using it, it was kind of fun, but didn't make money, right? And I think the second thing was 
Giftbook maybe, which was like animated GIFs on flipbooks. So I found a person in Malaysia who printed flipbooks and said, okay, can I just send you the frames of an animated GIF, which I, I would cut it up in PHP and it would email to, the, to him and then he would get some money, I would get some money. And it worked. Uh, a lot of people got animated GIF flipbooks, but then it was such a small margin, I gave up on it. There was Go Fucking Do It, which was the, which was the first one that went viral. It was an app where you set a goal and you put a price in it. Like, I want to quit smoking by 1 January 2018. And if I don't, I have to pay $50. And you enter your credit cards. And that was the first time I used Stripe. Interesting, maybe. It was very easy to set up for a basic coder like me. And then if... So there was a person who would check if you quit smoking or not. So they would get an email. Like, your friend would get an email. Did uh, Cortland quit smoking? Uh-huh on 1 January 2018. And your friend would be like, no, he didn't. Okay, charge. And then we do a Stripe charge <laughs> on your credit card. And then, the, but everybody always asks like, where does the money go to? Does it go to the friend? I was like, no, not to the friend because that would be subjective, right? It would go to me. I started making like a hundred, like a few hundreds of dollars a month, my first revenue from this Go Fucking Do It app. It was really funny. How did that feel? Did you not like, did you keep working on it or did you decide like, I'm done with this? No, I, I just let it run. And um but it was really funny, and I was I was like, okay, interesting. So maybe I make three hundred dollars a month from this. Theoretically, I could go to live in some cheap place and just you know get out of my parents' house. It was still in my parents' house, and it was getting more depressed. I was like a small little town in Holland. It's very depressing for me, especially when you're. I was like twenty six or something, and I was like, okay, come on, I graduate already. I need to, you know, after university, you, you can't live. Well, you can live with your parents, but I, in Dutch culture, maybe American culture too, it's not super normal. Maybe it's getting more normal to live with your parents, but I didn't really want to live with my parents. I wanted to be in the world because I had just been traveling. I like traveling. I like to be outside. I didn't want to go back to my small town, especially since I was living in Amsterdam for eight years, studying there and stuff. So, But I was happy, so I was making money. And then I kept shipping. And it was really amazing, life-changing moment that I saw money in a Stripe account and then to my bank account. It was just like like sigh of relief, like, okay, maybe this is going to work out. I think one of the most interesting things about your story so far is that you had this conviction before you even started 12 startups in 12 months that most startups fail. And you told yourself that you would work on each idea for one month and that was it. Whereas I think most people put all their hopes and dreams and kind of like, they put all their eggs in one basket. They're like, this is my pet project. It's got to work. Absolutely. That's the biggest mistake you can do. I see it all the time. I see it every single week. Yeah. It's crushing because then like when the thing doesn't work out, then not only are you a lot more surprised and depressed than you would have been otherwise if you had believed from the beginning that this thing probably was going to fail, but you also don't get to take as many shots in the end. I mean, you were launching new products every single month. If somebody quits after the first month or if they you know, persist in working on the same doomed project forever, they're not going to be in good shape. But also, a lot of people spend a lot of money, right? Because they, they're sorry, a lot of people spend a lot of money because they don't, they're not programmers or they're not designers and they don't do everything themselves, like me or you. So they have to hire people and so they spend all their money or they raise money, right? They spend all their money and then it's, it, it doesn't work. And like, what do you do? I mean, that's it. You're done. You're out of money and hopefully you didn't hire anybody. Your savings are gone, maybe? Yeah. It's a, it's a really hard, hardcore situation. Like when you run out of money and you're, what are you going to do now? Okay, find a job. Good. Okay. But, and then you're in a job again. Now, how are you going to get up back back to where you were? Yeah, it's tough. Which is you want to run a company for yourself. It's really tough. It's really it's depressing. It's 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 horrible. Like we always forget that we talk about these maker things and startup things like a, like it's really fun always. But it's these are life changing things, man. This is 
this is the soul crushing, depression, depressing. This can, can destroy friendships, families, relationships. It's, you know, it's, it's paying your bills is important. It's a crazy thing. If you can't pay your bills, it's, it's poverty for a lot of people. Like I have backups. I can, I could go to my parents' house and live there and they don't really, they don't really care. They just feed me, you know, they're just like, okay, you're back. Okay. Didn't work out. Didn't work out. Traveling the world, making money. Well, just come back and we'll, um, We'll cook food for you and you can uh, make coffee here and just enjoy. Use our Wi-Fi. <laughs> Mom, dad, co-working space. A lot of people don't have this backup. A lot of people, they can't go back. They need to make this work. Dude, it's hardcore shit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like this whole, like, I don't know what the best word for it. It's just like this difficult period where you're first trying to get off the ground and like you don't have a company. You don't have anything that can sustain you. And like if you don't have that backup, like I never lived at my parents' house, but I had been a programmer with a CS degree, and it's like I just could always fall back on the fact that like I can get a job. No matter what, I could take any risk because worst case scenario, I can get a job. You know, maybe I have to leave San Francisco, I can't pay, you know, these overpriced rents, but like I will be able to land on my feet. And if you're not in that situation, then I mean you're completely right. It's way more stressful. hundred percent. And I think we talk a lot about this like privacy, but I think it's really good to be aware of that. What I don't think is that you should hate on people for like that I have a fallback to my parents. Like I what I was just born, I can't help that. If you have it, like be grateful for it. It's really special. And um, I think a lot of people that are listening now maybe are in that situation where they have a job, they want to be a maker, they want to do something themselves because it's very aspira- it's an aspirational podcast, right? This whole scene is a little bit aspirational. And so a lot of people make it work, a lot of people don't. I don't know what to say, but I, I would say um, I just completely respect how incredibly hard it is. It can be super hard. Yeah. And I've been there a little bit. How did you? How did you? I guess decide to move on from the last thing that you built. That was what was it? Go fucking fund it. Go go fucking go do fucking it. Do go it. fucking fund it. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> you said fund it. <laughs> San Francisco is changing it's, you. It's gone in my brain. <laughs> we didn't do things. We fund things. That's it. We just fund yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I was I kept shipping his stuff right. So around May, I'd been in Holland for like five months, like December to April or May. So I heard about this co-working space in Bali called Hubuts in a place called Ubuds. So I, and I saw a video, I was like, wow, this is like a bamboo co-working space with monkeys. It sounds really weird. Uh, maybe YouTube it if you're listening. H-U-B-U-D. So I went there and um, I was like, okay, I'm going to continue this travel thing. And now I have these few hundred dollars so I can pay for a hotel, right? And But I had to keep shipping. So I started making a new idea I had was I'd been traveling around these places Mostly around, you know, back then, mostly around Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, like uh, Seoul, of course, Bangkok, Chiang Mai, those places, Bali. I was like, okay, these places are pretty cool to to live for a while and you can really focus on things because it's a very different life than in SF or Holland where, um, well, first of all, SF is very expensive. Amsterdam is also almost at the same level, very expensive. So you can't eat out a lot, at least I can't back then especially. And what the life... I had in in Asia was mostly just you you're in the covering space you're working you get coffee then you get some food food isn't very expensive you get a like three dollar sandwich you get two fifty US dollar dinner maybe so I could save a lot of money like bootstrapping with this money from go fucking do it the thing is I wanted to see if there was more cities like this more places where it was like fast intense a little bit cheap and what is it yeah warm. It had to be a little bit warm because I didn't. I'm from Holland. I don't really like the temperature in Holland. I like it to be more like California temperature, and it made me feel happier and stuff. So I made a spreadsheet 
of templates I knew. And then I shared on Twitter, like, do you know any other places that are cool like this? Because literally nobody knew. There was no, there was no, no, like, the digital nomad scene wasn't really existing so much as now. People didn't know remote work. Remote work was literally hardly on Hacker News. Digital nomads were definitely not on Hacker News. And I remember in Chiang Mai, like the nomad hotspot now, there was only like 20 people back then doing this stuff. And we, we all knew Tim Ferriss, but it wasn't very, it wasn't a big thing at all. Tim Ferriss had been in 2007 with this four-hour work week, but it had kind of, how do you get tapered off? This is the word, I think. So I was like, okay, where can we go? And there were some blogs that were talking about different cities, but it wasn't quantified data. So I made the spreadsheet, shared it on Twitter. And I was like, okay, maybe some people added. But then hundreds of people started adding. And then there was, I think, a f- over a thousand people added data. Also about like the cost of living and stuff. And I was like, wow, this went very viral. This is very interesting. This is like like an anomaly. This is, this is not normal. How did you get a thousand people to find this spreadsheet that you created? Well, I tweeted it. And then people started sharing it on Reddit. People started sharing it in, I don't know, where they were talking back then. Because there was no real chats about Nomad stuff. But I honestly have no idea. It only got three retweets. But it somehow filled up. And I also, I kept filling it up with more data. I started Googling like cities and stuff. I remember that one of the first we found out about was Medellin in Colombia, which was had the same kind of characteristics as, as Bangkok and Chiang Mai and Bali. It was warm and cheap. And then normal cities started showing up. So San Francisco, Amsterdam, within a month, it was very filled with data. I was like, okay, this is cool, but we need to have this as a website. Uh, so I made a table. I just copied the data from the spreadsheets and I put it in a HTML table. I found some photos of the cities and... First, it was called technomad.io because it was like a cool name because I hated the word digital nomad. It was a horrible name. <laughs> and then I remember talking to Mark, Mark from BetaList, Mark Kolbrugge, uh, also a Dutch guy. And I asked him, like, what do you think about the name? Like, should I do uh, technomad? He, should do, he said, no, no, maybe like remote list, like beta list. I said, like nomad list? He's like, yeah, yeah, nomad list works. So I, I made none of this, and then I went to Product because um, GoFundMe do it had been on Product and I was like big fan of Product and Ryan Hoover and stuff. And I checked that logo; it was a round circle with a P in it. So I was like, okay, I'll just do a round circle, but I'll make it more red, and I put a backpack in it, or nay, more, it was first like a world icon. Anyway, and then I made it. It was um, I just copied Product Hunt layouts, and but with cities, and I, I kept. <laughs> <laughs> I've been copying Product Hunt until today. Just everything they do. But I do it for cities, and I, I, but I'm honest about it. I just I tweet product content right over, and I think they like it. But yeah, super inspired by them. So I made this table, I made this website, and then this is, this is super funny. I deployed it in test on my server, right? Like the Nginx config and stuff, and the server config. But it wasn't live yet. And then my server rebooted because Linode had Linode, my hosting company, had maintenance, and somehow the the default the, the server config got loaded, and the site was suddenly up. And I had no idea. Oh, no. And then I remember I was in Manila and I was like at this, like we were having like cocktails or drinks or something. And I remember checking my phone and I started getting hundreds of tweets. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? Oh, God, I accidentally deployed my site. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think Emil, this other Dutch guy, he submitted to Prodicant and then I went to number one. And meanwhile, I was, I was drunk, right? I was drunk at 4 a.m. in Manila in some taxi on my phone, like checking what's, what's, what the hell is happening. I was trying to tell to people in the bar, like, you know, guys, girls, look at this. I don't know what's happening. But they didn't understand <laughs> why this was like a very integral key point in my life at the time. Because I could see this is really like the sheet went viral. The site goes viral without even me posting it. 
it's insane. And I went to Paragon number one, and I was like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. This is, this is going to change everything. You know what's cool is like the fact that you're, you're so prolific and you're launching all of these startups. Because I mean, at this point, you've launched at least four or five products out there. And I think like that experience makes it much easier for you to tell when something is really catching on. Because a lot of people are stuck in the situation where they don't know, like, like, should I keep working on this? Is this working? Is it going to work? Or should I move on to the next thing? But if you've done like five things and one of them is way better, you're like, all right, this is clearly on a different level. Like, I should stick with this. Dude, that's completely it. It's, uh, and it's intuition. I really believe in intuition a lot. And you know when something's special. It's just like when you see a boy or girl, whatever, and you you fall in love, right? You're like, okay, I know this. Well, it's not always accurate, but uh, I know this might work out, right? It's same with when something like this goes fire. Like, oh my god, this is completely uh, crazy. And I remember I woke up the next day, and Twitter was full of messages. I got all these emails. I think then I went on Hacker News the same day or that week, and then it went also number one there. And it was, dude, the site was nothing. It was like a, a HTML table with cities and, and the cost <laughs> on it. It wasn't even special. And if you launch something that's so not special, that goes like this. You're like, oh, maybe this is, it's not about the product. Maybe it's about the trends. And it's like, okay, so maybe this digital nomad trend is finally moving from where it was, which was like Tim Ferriss four hour, Tim Ferriss four hour work week. A little bit sleazy, I think, internet marketing, virtual assistants, bullshit scene, to be honest. That's what it was. Towards Hacker News people, right? Hacker News people were the remote developers, engineers, people that are just doing really cool shit, right? That are, that's changing people's lives. It's cliche to say, but it's true. They're making like these giant apps that are all over the world being used, like um, Lyft, Uber, Facebook, Google, whatever, Apple, right? It was arriving there. So... It wasn't ready in 2007 yet. And I think it wasn't ready because of internet speeds and a lot of stuff. Uh, now it was finally ready. I think the financial crisis of 2008 had something to do with it. Like this, like the lay effect of like, okay, I don't know, we, we want to have a different life maybe. How much were you thinking about this stuff back then? Like, were you like putting in a lot of thought to figure out what is... I was. I was thinking a lot about it. I was thinking a lot about it because I remember blogging about bootstrapping startups in, in Asia back then. And it kept going on Hacker News. Like people, me or people, I think other people also were submitting my posts and they kept going on the front page of Hacker News. So I was like, okay, this is, this is definitely something Hacker News likes. And Hacker News, to be honest, and this sounds very arrogant, but Hacker News is always ahead of trends about three or four years from mainstream. Like Bitcoin, Dropbox, well, Dropbox, they were negative about, right? But it turned out to be fine. Always when something's happening in Hacker News, it's going to, my mainstream friends are going to talk about it within three years. And my mom and dad is, are going to talk about it within five years. To be honest, that's just how it works for me. So I was like, okay, if Hacker News likes it, this is going to be a thing. So I need to like, you know, um, how do you call it? Like go full on this project. So I went and I, I think I launched a few more 12 stars, but I didn't finish the project, to be honest, in that year, at least. I finished it, I think, by now. <laughs> I think I've launched by now 12 projects. But back then I was like, okay, I have two choices. Or I leave this site kind of like basic and not maintain it. That would be super stupid. But then I can continue to 12 startups. So I went 100% on that product and I just started like adding data, adding features. I knew I needed social features because I, I read something. If you want to keep people coming to your website, you need to make this site sticky. So you need to either ask them for their email or you need to have like social features that they sign up, right? I didn't know how to make a login form or user database stuff. It was really hard. So I was like, okay, Slack was coming up back then, so I was like, okay, I'll just use Slack. And I made a Slack group, and I started inviting my friends. And then that grew within a month, grew to like 500 people. 
and then 1,000 people. And I kind of connected to the website, but really shitty again. Like, <laughs> like it hardly worked. It was like a tie. It was a tie form. And then I remember getting spammers on this Slack because everything was free. So I charged five dollars, and with Typeform you could add a you can add a Stripe box really easily. So they would uh, pay money, and then the spammers were gone, right? And then there was more spammers again. So I charged twenty five dollars, and then fifty dollars, and then I think ninety nine dollars. So I kept charging more, and then suddenly I was making money from Go Fucking Do It, and I was making money from Nomadist. And it wasn't basic money; it was starting to pass one thousand dollars a month. I was like, oh my god, and it kept growing. I was like, okay, this is super, super simple because if there's more users and they're going to pay, then, you know, I could maybe write, get this to like $2,000, $3,000 and I have like income, salary, it will be amazing. And it happens. And then it happened way faster than I thought. And then... How long did it take? Well, this took a few months, but I remember the first week of, of, of Nomadis launching, I got an email from Matt Malawak, the founder of WordPress, uh, wordpress.com at least. And he said, can we sponsor the website? And I said, sure. And so he was sending me a few thousand dollars a month. So immediately that started making money as well. So now I had memberships, I had basic, basic sponsorship. So now I was at like maybe $3,000 a month or something, you know, and it was great. That's crazy how fast you got to that, that milestone. And I think it's interesting because you had this huge launch in Hacker News. Obviously your Twitter was blowing up. It was just this tremendous start, like this tremendous launch out of the gate. And for a lot of people, that's where it ends. You know, they get like a lot of traffic and then it just dies down and they can never get it back to where it was. But you were able to keep it sustained. How'd you do that? Yeah, but the key part is adding social features, I think. If I didn't, the site was gone. So it was the community forum, really, that helped you capture all that traffic that you had gotten during launch. Absolutely. Like I have 900,000 visits a month now. Only 200 people pay and sign up a month. So it's like 0.000 something. It's very low. But those people give money which makes me keeps me working on the websites. Also, they talk about it and they tell other people to join. And also, there's, you know, there's a concept of lurkers, you know, Reddit. Like, I think, what is it, 90%, 99% lurk? I think that's definitely true. So on social platforms, there's a lot of lurkers. And there's a few content creators or, you know, people that post forum topics. Like, you know, in any anarchist, like, I'm, you must have ratios on this, data on this. How many people post a forum thread and how many people watch? Yeah, it's like the vast majority are, are lurkers just reading stuff. Yeah, so based on that, I think you, you got to add sticky features. And, and like what I would have done different, I would have programmed them myself. But maybe it wasn't that stupid because that would have taken too long time. So I needed to immediately make it social. Well, it, it still took, I think, a month or two or something to add Slack and stuff. Is this something that you like spend a lot of time looking at metrics and measuring exactly like what parts of, an, of Nomad List are sticky and have high retention? Or is it more like gut feeling, I know I need social features, so I'm just going to put the best social features that I can think of. And is this something that you've kept doing since you launched Nomad List, or is it kind of just upfront, you put, in, put them there, and then since then you haven't had to do much in that area? Well, I used to check a lot of analytics, and now I hardly. And this is funny, because I, I think I spoke to Mark from Betalist, and he also hardly checks it, and it's just gut. It's, I realized that I don't want to make a website for like everybody. I just want to make a site that I would love to use, which means you have to do choices that are against what people say. So you might decrease your page views, but you just make a cool website. And if you follow all these metrics, not necessarily, but kind of, you will make things for me. I don't want to make a site for metrics. I want to make a site for humans, you know, and that comes from like, I was a musician before this. And if you make a song that everybody likes, well, this is, sorry, that's a really (laughs) shitty song. Generally, it's just, but maybe not, maybe, you know, like uh, Justin Bieber is kind of good song, but in general, I want to be the indie artist and I want to make really, like, I want to make Radiohead kind of music that's weird and before that, like it's uh, ahead of the curb and, and it's edgy 
I want to make a Radiohead type website where it's just like, why is this site so weird? But it works. Okay. And then, you know, like, how can you see it in the analytics? If you follow the analytics, then you're going to always be maybe behind because maybe in two years it will go down, but you don't know why. Maybe mine will go up because my gut was right. Because I was like the Hacker News gut, which is always three years ahead. I don't know. Maybe it's arrogant, but maybe it's true. Yeah, I think also it's much better if you have a handful of people who really love or hate what you're doing than have a ton of people who are lukewarm about whatever it is that you're building. That's it. It's better to have all these haters as well. Um, you're totally right. But I think what I, what I did do is I would launch features and then I would, I would let, look at the database or something. Like, okay, are you people adding, like I added the trips feature where people tr- uh, plan trips. I was like, okay, are people actually adding their travels to this? And they did. And now it's a really big part of the product of Nomad List. So I definitely I test the features. Yeah, and it's also cool that you are a Nomad List user yourself. I mean, you're a digital nomad and you started this entire thing because you were traveling and you wanted to know what the best places to go were, which gives you a lot of insight into what features to build, uh, especially compared to somebody who might just be working on this who doesn't really travel and live that lifestyle themselves. No, totally, yeah. I feel like, you know, like patient zero, I feel like Nomad's number zero and the site has to be great for me. And I think that's a very good question and integral part of like making bootstrapping and stuff that you, it's better to make things for yourself and solve your own problems. It has limitations as well, but it means you're the expert at your own problem. And I see so many people, the majority of people are trying to solve other people's problems. And, And I've tried that too. It hardly works for me because I don't know the problem. And it's as bare as this that last year I went... I was living in Holland for a while in the summer and I forgot <laughs> I forgot what nomading was and what what's important. And I, I kind of made the site worse. And then I started traveling and I was like, okay, this site is unusable on mobile. And why are all these buttons here that are not important? I want to know, like I'm literally standing in the middle of nowhere now. I want to know where is the place to work? Where is the hotel? Where is this and this? What's the price of this? And I so I changed the website again to, to fit my needs again. Yeah, exactly. So being the customer of your own product, like dog fooding is so super important for me. That's such a good hack. It's like I wish I wish I could do that more easily with indie hackers. It's like I made indie hackers for similar reasons to help me solve my own problem. It was really to help me come up with an idea for something to work on and to help other people do the same thing. And then it's like once I got something to work on, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't the ideal user anymore for a long time until I built the forum. No, and it's a traditional fall for companies that they forget what they're, who are they making things for? What's their audience? Like, why are they, you see it so much with um, VC funded startups. They start with like, okay, uh, like Nomads, for example. If no one, this was VC funded. And then the VC would call me within like month two, say, you know, Peter, Nomads is a small market. You need to go for the general travel market. And I'm like, well, dude, like I didn't even validate the Nomad market. It's month two. And, I, and then he's like, no, you got to go into all these different verticals. And, you know, after three years, I'm like selling furniture or something. It's just too, too broad. And it's, it's insane. So don't do that, you know, like, like make it for yourself. Well, let me ask you, how do you keep your eye on the ball? Because the entire time you're building your company, you're going to run into snags. You're going to run into issues where you want to grow and maybe something's holding you back. Or you might change as a person, you know. So how do you make sure that you're always building Nomad List for yourself? That's my biggest fear, to be honest. Because in terms of nomads, I'm a different nomad than I was the first month, right? That I did it, like 2014 in April. I was I was so naive and but but also like exhilarating. Everything was 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 exciting and stuff. And now it's still amazing for me. But it's more like like now I want to stay in places pretty long. Like I want to stay three to six months or maybe you know nine months. I don't know. I just want to I want to have more of a base. Maybe it's not just about age. It's about like 
I know how it is to travel every two weeks to a different continent. And it's ridiculous. Like it's really, it sounds cool, but it's ridiculous. You sit in airplanes and, and everything kind of starts looking the same. And that's not the point of travel. So for example, that's the difference from me four years ago. And the question is, who are my users? Is it me or is it these new people? And I kind of need to focus on both, but it's not sure. So that's, it's a big challenge, man. How do you know? Are you like, are you just talking to people in your community? Are you like doing surveys? Are you just tweeting stuff out and seeing like what the reaction is? Absolutely. I, I talk a lot to people like I mean, because if I go to a co-working space in a nomad spot, I will get recognized, which is really funny. And they'll be like, oh, I love the website. I use it a lot. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you really think? Like, what do you don't like about this? He's like, honestly, like these buttons are ridiculous. Like you need to change. I'm like, okay, cool. What else? And they'll be, I'll just try and get the negative stuff. It's very important. most important. Get the fanboy stuff, fangirl stuff out of the way and just like, okay, what's bad about the website? What do you hate? And why are you not using it? A lot of nomads, they're like in Bali for them, they're just not using it. Why are they not using it? Do they, should they use it? Or they've already found their spot? Like there's people saying here like, okay, I don't need your website because I'm already in a co-working space where I meet friends and people and stuff, which is one of my side's goals, right? I'm like, well, that's a very good point. Like maybe that's better, right? But yeah, you have to talk to people and also solve your own problem. But yeah, it's hard. It's pretty cool because you're in like a good like industry where it's like maybe even a little bit easier to talk to people because traveling is like on one hand it can be really lonely but on the other hand it's kind of social if you have these meetups with people who you know are nomad list users and they go to Bali and they want to meet other people like them who are also nomads you can just go literally talk to people face to face whereas like so many other people launching businesses will never once talk to a customer face to face absolutely and and. No, I remember Patio Eleven. He he was uh, he made an app called Appointment Reminder, right? Yeah. And he would go into barbershops and he would just say, "Hey, what's your biggest problem?" You know, I don't know if I could if I had the guts to go into a barbershop and like ask all these. They were like, "What are you What are you doing here, man? You need to get your haircut or you get out." Like, <laughs> but for me, it's easier. And um, you know what's also interesting? Like, you need to be sure that the local knowledge you get is it's very different than the internet knowledge. But people say the internet is way it's a lot of hate, but it's also way more honest and real. And, you know, Reddit, they upvote like the highest, like the most important thing they say maybe about your website. Uh, they will be like, Nomad List, is, Nomad List sucks on Reddit. And then the top vote is like, yeah, this and this and this sucks. While in a co-working space, like, or real life, you would, they would be way more nuanced. But there's probably a lot of truth in both. And I think more truth in the Reddit top comment, which says like, Peter, why, why is this wrong with your website? You know, it's so radically honest. People are afraid to offend you in real life. So when they see you in person, they'll, they'll be much kinder, which is nice on one hand. But then you kind of have to filter and be like, okay, what do you really think? Yeah, but then the opposite happens on the internet. They're like, you are a terrible <laughs> person. I hate you. And then you meet them in real life and they're like, you know, sorry I said that, but I had six coffees that day and I was a little outraged. <laughs> but um, but I, I can understand the hate. I mean, on the laptop, you're different. On the computer, we're different. So let's talk about travel for a second while we're on the subject of, of meeting people abroad. How do you get so much done while also living this digital nomad lifestyle? I mean, I have this image of you on a jet with your laptop open, cranking out features on the plane and being super productive and meeting people. Whereas when I'm traveling, I get very little done. I'm completely discombobulated. The process of having to constantly pack things up and unpack them makes it hard for me to get work done. So I'm curious what you do to counteract that. No, I mean, me too on the plane. I, first of all, I hate flying and it's, I feel horrible and I feel sick after. And it takes me about seven days to get to normal, to be honest. Like, oh, you see four days, but something like that. 
I think the, the misunderstanding, which is very radical, is that nomads or me, they travel a lot. Like, I don't travel at all a lot. I might even travel less than you. Definitely in the beginning, I would fly like from, you know, like every few weeks or something. And now it's just, it will, I'll prefer to stay in places for months. So it means that I will fly, like I just flew from Holland to Bali in Indonesia. And this was like uh, a month ago. So it took like a few days to recover. And then I've been shipping solidly. Like I've launched Nomadless 3.0 here and I've been shipping solidly from here. And um, yeah, it's fine. It's just, it's, it's exactly like normal life. And I think we need to get rid of this, this idealization of travel. Like fast travel is absolutely terrible for you. Holiday travel where you just go someplace for seven days is, come on, it's, it's, it's fine. I understand why it is because especially in America, people work, like what do they get? Like a week? It's like two weeks. Day, I think. By law, in Europe, it's much more. Two weeks, yeah. In Europe, you, I think you get like six weeks. The problem is that, you know, fi- when you finally feel like recovered, you have to go home again. That means a lot of people, they will try nomad stuff and they will do it really fast. And they'll say like, okay, this doesn't work for me. Like I'm not feeling psychologically stable. I don't feel physical uh, stable. You know, you go crazy. Huh. So my advice would be what I do is I stay longer in places. Yeah, I've never done the long vacation thing, but honestly, that sounds like the right way to do it. Yeah. Another thing that I've heard you say that was actually pretty cool is I think you were giving some sort of talk about how to be a bootstrapper, how to get like a startup off the ground, and you were talking about ideas. And how one of the cool things about traveling is that it kind of gives you more ideas because you're seeing all sorts of like different things, unique experiences that other people aren't. So, you know, people in San Francisco might be all reading the same books and blogs and having the same conversations about the same cultural events. And they're like, man, I can't think of a unique idea. Everything I think of is already taken. But when you are traveling and visiting these like, you know, faraway places in Bali or South Africa, and you're interacting with all these different peoples and cultures, suddenly you have a lot more material to work with in terms of being creative. Yeah, absolutely. And I learned this in business school, I think, where there was a word called um, like international arbitrage. And it's a very broad word, but you can also apply it to products where uh, like my friend, he's, he's British, but he was, uh, he's Hong Kong ethnically. So he would go to Hong Kong a lot. And he said, you know, in Hong Kong, the biggest selling thing now is a, a little um, doll, tiny doll to wrap your uh, headphone cord around of your iPhone. I was like, yeah, of course, it sounds super logical. Why don't we have that? Or what's now slowly starting to come here is like, um, I have a ring on my iPhone a metal ring that sticks on my on the back of my phone and makes me never drop it. And I don't have a case. I just have this ring. And now it's finally getting in New York and in America, I think, and in Europe. So that's an, it's called just an economic advantage of information you have over other people in your country or your area that, that they don't have because they haven't traveled. And it's weird to me how slow information will spread sometimes or like not spread at all. Like I kind of expect it to just be instant. But it's not. Absolutely. With the internet? Yeah, it's like if people have a good idea somewhere, I expect it to catch on everywhere else, but it doesn't. No, but I, I think it has to do with culture. Because So, for example, a phone ring uh, on the back of your phone, you, will, you might see it on Reddit the same day as Japanese people see it, but you will not like it because it's not your, your culture isn't ready for it yet. It might take three years and you're like, now I get it. You know, that kind of stuff. And there's stuff you can get from South America. The stuff in America, like when I'm, I visit just LA and like things, like specific small things are completely different than in the rest of the world. The whole vibe is different. So you can, I can take that to Europe, for example, if I have a product or if I have a service. A famous executor of economic product arbitrage is Rocket Internet. I think you know them. It's a German company. 
And they're famous, and I'm not a super big fan, but that's economic arbitrage. They would copy American product ideas, big startups, and they would start doing it in Europe and then in Asia and South America. Getting inspired by different surroundings, but also specifically seeing different products and services and then bring it to your country. That's, that's a famous way for entrepreneurs to uh, get successful. Another one that I can give an example of, uh, singers in Europe, I grew up with all these pop singers that were singing Dutch songs. And then I recently realized that they were all singing the same songs, but in different languages with the same <laughs> instrumentals. That, that kind of stuff. It's just like taking stuff from different countries. And, then you, you know, and if you stay in the mainstream of your own country or your own area, you will never realize that. And you're also going to find it, I think, much harder to solve your own problems. Like I hear this all the time. People say, oh, I just can't come up with an idea. I don't have any problems to solve. You know, I don't have any problems worth solving in my life. And it's like, yeah, because you're living the same life that everybody around you is living, which means you have the same problems that they have, which means it's likely that you know, someone thought of solutions to these problems a long time ago and you're late to the game. So you know, then it becomes hard because you have to be super creative and find something that no one else is doing or be way ahead of the trends or have like some sort of specialist knowledge to come up with an idea. And the more the more the same you are, the more homogenous you are, the less competitive advantage you have economically, because you will be the same. And economics and capitalism is based on the idea that you have a differentiating product. If you make the same product, and I see this every day, you will not have a differentiating advantage. So you can't. And then you ask them like, why is your startup different? And they say, well, we have this, and it's like a small detail, like our our blog post editor is better. That's not a differentiating advantage. It's probably going to change everything. You need a, a significant product differentiator to be successful, I think. And, you, you, and you, you don't realize that when you're the same. You really don't. And I think a lot of people are in the situation where they, they know what their goals are. You know, they know that they want to be a successful business owner. Uh, they know that they might not ever want to have a boss again. Or maybe they just want the freedom to work on something of their own choosing that they love, uh, even if it doesn't pay as much as their regular job. But they get stuck in this whole idea phase where it's like, okay, well, what next? You know, what do I even work on? I don't have any good ideas Besides the stuff that we've talked about, like, is there any other advice that you have or have you ever been in a situation where like, you've struggled to come up with ideas? Like, how are you so confident in coming up with one idea every month for 12 months? Well, what I did was I had a Trello board back then with different idea lists or uh, yeah, different lists of ideas. And I would have like <laughs> super early random weird ideas. And then, okay, this might work idea. And then planning to ship it and then shipped it. And then was failure or success. So literally, like, it was, Nomadis was Technomad, so it was, it was a Trello card back then, and go fucking do who was in there. And now it's more, like, in my brain. And also, I, I, I have less time to ship different, different ideas now, so I have, a few, I, I have a better eye, I think, to see what works for me as an idea and what doesn't. But back then, I had, I had no idea at all, so I would just write every idea I had in a list. And I would do that every day, almost. There would be something that... And you can't really be judgmental about your baby babies, your ideas, just got to put them in that list and see, hmm, maybe it takes like a year or two to brew on it. Maybe your, your subconscious will change it a little bit and then it finally works. But you need to collect all these ideas. And it's a discipline, man. Getting ideas is a discipline. Like seeing your surroundings and then finding problems and seeing, hmm, could we solve this? That's a, that's a skill you can learn. I think the same thing. I think a lot of people have this whole wait for inspiration to strike mindset, which is God, does that really work? Like how often does inspiration just strike you? I think that's kind of the Hollywood narrative that isn't exactly realistic. I think it's much better to be very deliberate about deciding what you're going to work on and very deliberate about identifying opportunities because you'll just come up with better ideas. I mean, you and your Trello board, that's a perfect example of being deliberate. 
I actually kept an idea notebook for years that I would never really read. I would just write in it when a new idea came to me. And when the time came for me to actually work on something new and I was reading this idea notebook, I had to basically throw the entire thing out because all the ideas were terrible because I never really took the time to refine them. So I think you get a lot more mileage if you're very deliberate about doing this and you're going over and iterating on these ideas and prioritizing them and reading them and working on them actively. And then the thing is like you need a lot of different... You need to do this, well, if you do want to do it my way, you need to have a lot of ideas and most will not work out. And be less arrogant about your ideas. Like, don't, like, I see this arrogance of, no, this is our startup, it's going to work, our product is much better, it's great. And don't be so arrogant, man. Like, validate and, and see if, it, if it's true. Otherwise, you, you don't know anything. And generally, most things won't work out. It's just, come on, it's the same with dating. Um Talk to most people won't work. They won't become your girlfriend or boyfriend. It's normal, right? Maybe we're too used to things working out. Yeah, I think it's one thing to hear people talking about how most startups fail or how most relationships don't work out. But then when your startup fails or when you get dumped, then that's a whole different feeling. Yeah, so it's like an illusion. Absolutely, it's like hypnosis. It's like an illusion that you think. I think in this all sorry, but this also applies to relationships. You need to be. You need to know that. If you're in a relationship, maybe it's not going to work out. Same with startups, same with everything in life. Maybe nothing is uh, sure, right? You can't be too confident. So do you have like a checklist? Like if you're going to work on an idea, how do you decide whether or not it's worth working on? Do you have like a list of criteria like, okay, you know, I got to analyze the size of the market and see if this idea is big enough. Or, you know, this has to be an idea that I really love working on. Or maybe it has to be related to nomad list in some way. Or maybe you don't even use a checklist. Well, no, I think it's, it's intuition. It's a lot of it was intuition in the beginning. Although now, um, what switched after this twelve star stuff was that I, I knew that I could make make money from stuff, and I didn't want to do non monetizable side projects all the time. You know, I I wanted to make stuff that generally I could easy easily monetize because I needed money. <laughs> so I filtered it on that. So point number one for you is that it absolutely has to make money. No, I mean it doesn't. But if the, if your goal is to pay bills, yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Don't kill your babies. Like, and generally, you you will every website mostly you will be able to find a way to make some money, right? But your time is limited. You know, a lot of people are trying to make things work on their savings, right? They, they have like twelve months to to make something work to become a maker or a startup founder, and then they know their savings are gone. So if your time is limited, you know, try and focus on stuff that is at least a little, little bit monetizable because you need to, the money, right? If you're doing it as a hobby. Side project, which is great. I think it's amazing. It's like creative expression for sure. Then, of course, it doesn't matter. It depends on your priorities. I like what you were saying earlier about how Nomad List is really a clone of Product Hunt. Uh, it reminds me of that quote about how good artists copy and great artists steal. And I think what you were really doing was stealing from Product Hunt. Uh, I think to copy something is really just like to copy the surface level details. You know, you're not really going deep. But if you steal something, you're really taking it and you're making it your own. And what you're doing is taking Product Hunt's features and making them your own on Nomad List and making them apply to digital nomads. And what's funny is that I did the same thing to Nomad List with ND Hackers. Like ND Hackers is really Nomad List in disguise. And people don't really know this because it's not obvious on the surface, but <laughs> that's amazing. It looks much better than Nomad List, I think. <laughs> Thank that's you. Beautiful. But seriously, there's this like the business model or maybe just like the strategy behind Nomad list, I think is so cool. And when I first saw it, like the reason that it inspired me was because I figured, hey, I think this could be applied to a whole bunch of different ideas 
that aren't just Nomad List. And it's cool to have you here now because I can actually you know, run these thoughts by you and you can tell me if my analysis is off. But I think for any topic that people really care about, but where it's also hard for them to do research, you can do all of that research for them and put it in one place and essentially create a site like Nomad List or Andy Hackers. And it's going to look different depending on what the topic is. So with Digital Nomads, what you made was a grid of cities with numerical data that makes it easy to compare one city to another. With Andy Hackers, it's a list of interviews with entrepreneurs who've already done what you're trying to do. And Product Hunt is just a daily list of the newest products. And I think from an outside perspective, they all look very different, but it's the same underlying principle of just taking data that people really care about and compiling it and putting it into a useful format all in one place. And then phase two is once you have all this traffic, is you build a community around this information or around the people who are interested in this information. And this is something that you did very early on with Nomad List with your community forum and your ability to get people to contribute to the actual data and rankings. And then phase three is once you have this community of people who all care about the same things, you build related products that they'll also find valuable, which is again something that you've done a really good job of with Nomad List. And I think Product Hunt's really done the same thing. And again, I think what's great about this is that anybody can follow the strategy so long as they pick the right topic and they figure out a valuable way to compile and display that data. No, that's, that's golden analysis, like 10, 10 out of 10 points. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's super spot on. And I think, yeah, not, lo- not enough people realize this. And also, I think this is a very interesting, again, like I did economics and this is economic theory because this is the gaps that Facebook isn't filling. Like Facebook is a giant social platform, right? They can't do niches very well because you have these Facebook groups about startups. And to be honest, they're all terrible. You have Facebook groups about nomads and they're all like spam and self-promotion garbage. Facebook groups are generally not so great. And then you have a dedicated website, which Facebook doesn't have the resources because they they don't care about nomadless revenue. That's that's like peanuts for them, right? But for me, it's a lot. For a billion dollar company, they don't care. And they can't invest a lot of effort into making a site like this so there's an opportunity even with big corporations dominating the internet right like netflix facebook google whatever to fill these niches yeah it's small potatoes for them they need it like normal people need these they want they need indie hackers they need nomad lists because there's nowhere else right and i think that's economic economic um, explanation of what's happening which means that there's a niche for and probably we don't know, but there's a niche for horse farms or whatever, or um, horse tables or uh, coffee cup uh, designers or, you know, latte art. Of course they are. And this entire, maybe they're bigger than Indiax and Nomadis, you don't know. Because you can collect all the people from the whole world in one niche to one website with a forum, with a chat, with some data about the products or the topic. And that's it. Yeah, and also the cool thing about it is that you can pretty much do whatever it is that you're interested in. Like if you are an avid underwater basket weaver, then you probably spend a lot of time on the subreddit for underwater basket weaving. And you probably know a lot about that topic. Or if you're a digital nomad, you know, you can look at the Facebook group, the Facebook groups that exist for digital nomads and say, okay, why do these groups suck? Is it because they don't have the right audience or the right people? Or is it because they're not providing anything of value? I mean, you can't really, in a Facebook group, create a database of cities with like cost data and internet speed like you did with Nomadlist. Exactly. How are you going to do that? Post a picture? Like It's very hard, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And because you know a lot about this particular topic, you can go out and build your own custom format, and you can present the data in a way that's way more useful than anyone will ever be able to do with a Facebook group or with whatever proprietary format they're using. That's it, yeah. 
But to be honest, like like two decades ago, it wasn't different. Like 1996, you had all these forums, I think, and websites about topics. It's always been this way. It's just more modern now. And now we call them maybe startups. But I mean, honestly, we're just making websites, right? Sometimes they're bought by big companies like yours. You know? But it, you know, startups are just websites or web apps and they do something. It just, it looks really flashy now, but it's the same thing we were doing in 1996. I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, about like the startup thing, because we're really, we're building websites and we always want to make the things that we're working on sound flashier and bigger and more impressive and better than they actually are. And I think a related topic to this is with code. Programmers do this all the time. If, if you don't unit test all of your code, if you aren't using this framework or this language or this methodology, then you're not a real programmer. I mean, I don't know how many times you hear people spewing this toxic bullshit. And it's funny because you are like, the exact opposite. You will use whatever it takes to get the job done. You'll use PHP, you'll, you'll use SQLite in production. You'll do whatever works, and you don't care about being, quote-unquote, a real programmer. Where does that mindset come from, and how did you become that way? Well, because I didn't have a choice, because I was like a WordPress script kitty, so I didn't, and then Nomadless started taking off, so I needed to learn the codes while something was taking off. So I, I, if I would have said like, okay, guys, I'm gonna take off, take six months off to go to this React, <laughs> React JavaScript core bootcamp, and then I rewrite the whole website, come on, it would be gone. So I didn't have any choice. So the constraints, this is important. I think keyword is constraints of creativity and constraints of expression made me uh, like this. And this is, I think, one thing you said was wrong. Like I don't, I'm not religious. I'm just teasing maybe, but I'm not religious against all these new JavaScript frameworks and hip stuff, I might sound like it. I'm, I'm just saying, like, they're attacking us or they're attacking me for using basic technology that runs most of the internet. PHP runs most of the internet websites, to be honest. Um, and it works fine. So I'll just tease them, like, okay, well, you know, React is some hip framework where it takes 60 lines to write Hello World, which is really funny for me. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't use React. You should use whatever, I think, whatever works for you. And this comes from like art as well. Like when you see a beautiful, you know, when you, when you see a cool startup and you, you talk to an engineer, you're like, what's the stack you guys are using? Like what's or girls, what, what's going on? Like, do you use uh, react or what about this? Um, if you go to an artist of an exhibition, like paint, paint artists, do you go in and you, the first thing you ask is which paintbrush <laughs> do you use? It's a, it's an outrageous question. It's absolutely ridiculous. Why would you, what does the paintbrush have to do with it? It just doesn't matter. Right, it's about the artists. It doesn't matter. It's a medium. Every all, most languages come from. Well, they all go to assembly, right? Like that's the computer or binary. It all compiles to the same zero and ones. So why are you asking about this? Isn't it about what's in my mind and what I'm trying to express here? So I see it more like in an artistic way, where it really is not important it's which technology you use and this religious we i think it's biological but this religiousness about technology stacks which is hilarious it's outrageous it's absolutely ridiculous and the only thing I, I i the only exception i see here is when you build a spaceship like elon musk i would definitely make sure it's safe and you use the right technology stack for it or if you're working you build a giant enterprise app it's definitely there might be advantages but if you're like a solo maker or a small team come on what does it matter um, make sure your site is secure, like do a security review, but stop being so religious about technology stacks. Use whatever works for you. I think it's, it's toxic actually, because it's, there are things that help people 
and inspire people to start things. You tweeting about how you launched Hood Maps and got to the front page of Reddit, or Patio11 writing about how he's knocking on doors and selling his app appointment reminder. People probably start a lot of startups that they otherwise wouldn't have and get the courage to start by hearing these stories. But at the same time, there are these other like negative forces where you know you might have haters on Hacker News who flame everyone who makes anything that's not exactly to their standards. Or you might have developers who are religious who are like have create this toxic environment of like you need to have the absolutely perfect code before you can start. And then people who might have otherwise started a company now won't start it because they feel like they need to go to get a CS degree before they can start anything or that everything they do has to be perfect. So I think you're one of the more inspiring people because you make it very clear that you don't have to do everything perfectly to succeed. And like you're really good at, I think, honing in on what is worth focusing on. Because it's not like you can build a startup by just ignoring everything. Some things matter. No, it definitely matters. But, but I also like to, to make myself look like more of an idiot than I am. I'm not that stupid as I look like on the internet. <laughs> I make myself look stupid to show how, if you're stupid, you could also do it. Because I, I do use stupid technology. But yeah, it needs to stop. And I think it is toxic. And it's very toxic to new people. My brother tried to learn web development. And he asked people, like, what to use. And I said, again, like, use whatever you know a little bit. Like, And he knew a little bit of uh, JavaScript and PHP. But he said, no, I'm going to learn Meteor. Because everybody says, I need to learn Meteor. This was a few years ago. And Meteor was hot. He went into this rabbit hole for two years, I think. He came out. He, he had shipped nothing. And he, but he could talk a lot about, I don't know, event bindings and all these weird terms and stuff and front end, back end merging. But it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the goal that he set in the beginning, which was he wanted to ship an app or a product. And I think that's very dangerous. And yeah, let's not keep new people out. You need to be inclusive of, of and welcoming of new people and, and come on, man, let, let them write whatever they want to write and make whatever and be a little bit nice about it and don't don't be so religious because yeah it's very 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 toxic and you know what the worst is the people hating are enterprise engineers they're not individual makers they're not startup teams generally startup teams know makers as well they know how hard it is and they they are usually tech stack ambiguous is the enterprise engineers and maybe they're listening and if you feel like this you know change your toxic behavior please because enterprise is different than what we're doing. It's a different world with different rules. I mean, in that situation, your job, your job is to code. Like the whole goal is to write code. Whereas when you're starting a company, it's like it's a means to an end. Yes, exactly. They have a specification and a team. My spec changes every second because I reload the page and I don't like the button. So I'll put the button somewhere else. That's a different specification of what we want to do. And come on, you need to see, like I'm not telling... I'm not telling Comcast how to code or how to ship, right? <laughs> you Comcast, you need to ship faster. Verizon, this is incredibly slow shipping. No, I'm just doing my thing. So enterprise engineer, let me do my thing and let everybody do their own thing. And it would be good for, for more people coming in. And it's amazing if more people come in. Just, we, should, we need more indie makers and more in, indie products. It's, I think it's very healthy. And it's literally the metaphor of having a corner coffee shop next to Starbucks. They exist. There's a lot of them. We need more corner coffee shop internet businesses. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, a big part of what you're doing with your blog and especially with your Twitter account is you're inspiring people. And you're getting more people in to build these corner shops, these corner coffee stores on the internet. But at the same time, you've built this huge audience for yourself. 
and it can serve as a distribution channel. So when you launch a new product, you can drive a ton of traffic just by tweeting about it without having to rely on getting press or getting to the top of Product Hunter Hacker News. And I think the way that you tweet is so distinctive. Like you have this free-flowing style. It's very carefree and very informal that a lot of people don't have. And the result is that your followers are more engaged. You get more tweets and more likes than other people with similar follower counts. And I wonder how much of your strategy is, is carefully considered. Because you mentioned earlier that you kind of dumb yourself down sometimes to, to make it obvious to people that anybody can do this. But other than that, do you have a Twitter strategy or is this just you being you? Yeah, I don't know. I never understood Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I was in this, like I'm now in co-working space in Bali. And there was a girl last year who, who said like, uh, anyway, we exchanged contacts on Twitter and stuff. And she followed me. She said, wow, you have a lot of followers. And then she asked me, like, what's your social media strategy? And I, you know, my brain kind of crashed. Like, I co- cannot <laughs> compute this question. Like, what do you mean strategy? What you, you just write what you think? That's no, and I was like, oh, maybe the rest of the world does, does it differently. Because I don't really have a goal on Twitter. No, people do not write what they think. <laughs> people self-censor. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and and we know people around us that self-censor a lot. And I I mostly don't censor. I literally just... I think what happens is I, I order three coffees in a day and about a 2.4 coffee, I start raging about things or, or, you know, not just raging, but also positive raging and thinking like, okay, like this week I was, on, I was using Tinder. I was like, this app doesn't work because I have all these matches, but I'm not meeting them. So I'll tweet like, okay, Tinder, 1,000 matches, doesn't work. I never met anybody. What's going on? And then everybody retweets it. And then maybe next week I'll make a dating app about it you know, based on this tweet. That's kind of how I think. So I'm constantly thinking about stuff and then I'm putting it on Twitter. So my Twitter is like my brain. It's very public. I've tweeted my meltdowns where I had relationship breakups and I was crying and I was drinking beer and crying. And I don't know, it's just, I want to be a little bit transparent because life is very ups and downs, right? And and I think that has, like I listen a lot to Joe Rogan and he talks a lot about transparency and honesty that the future will be open and we, it will be very hard to keep secrets in the future because of data leaks and hacks and stuff, right? And I think that's already happening where it's easier for me to mostly not have secrets and just be transparent and open about what I think. It's a really interesting way to look at it. You're just getting out ahead of this inevitable trend toward none of us having any privacy whatsoever. I think it's absolutely inevitable. And like my goal is not to have a following. My, like I do think there's a narcissistic element to it. Like I'm a little bit narcissistic, so I like having attention on me and it's not always good right but it's mo- it's it's mostly just like i'm dumping my brain on the internet and um and you know i get a lot of haters like there's a lot of stuff where i shouldn't have dumped it but i did and i was it showed my weakness of character like last year i was i was people attacking me i was attacking them back and it wasn't nice and then i've tried to be nicer this year i think it's working but yeah, you know, you just, I think transparency is, is, is great. But I think mostly don't have a social media strategy. Just be yourself. And I don't think that works on Facebook. I don't think it works on Instagram, but it definitely works on Twitter, being yourself. A lot of us, I think, get anxious about being ourselves online because it feels shitty for random strangers to hate on the things that you've shared, uh, especially if they're personal things. I personally will get defensive if people will say negative things about an app that I built. And an app is among the least personal things you can share. When you're actually sharing your opinions about how the world should work or you're sharing your personal information or health information or relationship news, like that's how do you deal with with anxiety and how do you deal with maybe the fear of people criticizing the things that you say? 
I think you need to understand that it's a platform. And I have a good example. I was doing YouTube. So I was a drum bass DJ and I would upload my mixes and I had a press photo <laughs> which looked like a trans DJ in Europe. Like it looked really bad, like really um, me in a white blouse. And then it just with a headphone, it was so cheesy. But the biggest thing, I it had 5 million views and there were 6,000 comments. And there was about 600 comments about my eyes that my, like they said, Wow, he looks like a hammerhead shark. Wow, his eyes are so far apart that they almost fall off his head. Or uh, I think he has peripheral vision and all this stuff. And I was so shocked. So I started looking at my eyes in the mirror. I was like, and then with my roommate, we measured up my eye distance between my eyes. And it was, it was pretty further than normal. <laughs> so I got very insecure about that. But the point was that it took a few months of being insecure. And I was like, okay, yeah, far apart, cool, whatever. Internet doesn't hate me. They just think I look like a hammerhead shark. So maybe that's my thing. You know, like make make the hate your thing, and um, <laughs> they're probably right. It's just it's maybe everybody is already thinking this about you, and now they say it. So it's the same with hacker news hate. Hacker news is so hardcore hateful, but you should read those comments because there's something there that's truth. I think like they they don't have any text, but it's true probably in in their definitely in their perspective, right? And so I think. For me, it's therapeutical because I will share something about my life or my, my apps or whatever. And I, I see good and bad comments and I can't hide behind anything, right? I can't because it's like my whole mind is on the internet. So I can't. And, you know, when you do excuses, like you have a lot of, we all have excuses about why we're not shipping, why we're not um, talking to that boy or girl, why we're not cleaning our room, whatever. You can't have excuses when you put everything, you dump everything on the internet. Because everybody will be like, hey, why didn't you clean your room? Hey, why didn't you talk to that girl or boy, right? It, it makes it actionable suddenly. So, and this is a psychological concept, I think, where the first step to resolving your, curing your problem is admitting it, right? So I think tweeting is like that. It's kind of like that app you made, go fucking do it. Except instead of being motivated by, you know, the idea of not losing your money, you're more motivated by thousands of people shaming you <laughs> because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Totally. And everything is a feedback session, right? Every single action or tweet you post is feedback. Yeah, it is. And I think you learn more from people on Twitter much faster than you do over other channels like email or something where it just takes so much time between... Oh, so slow. Yeah, it's so slow. Whereas on Twitter, you're having this real-time back-and-forth conversations and you can also include a lot more people at the same time. Absolutely. And I, I believe in the crowd. Like, I think the crowd knowledge is so powerful like, especially if you have, like, I now I think I have almost 40,000 followers. So some are, are listening and uh, the crowd together knows very well what's going on. So doing a Twitter poll with 40,000 followers, like last week we tried to b predict the Bitcoin price. I don't know if it's true, but they predicted like $27,000. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, Hootmaps is all crowd-based. Nomadlist is crowd-based. It's crowd knowledge, like Wikipedia, man. It's crowd-based mostly. So... Don't under, like you shouldn't. I think you shouldn't trust asking your friends necessarily for advice. Always, you should. You should definitely trust the crowd because, like uh, Paul Graham and, and Y Combinator, they always have a blog, and then at the bottom it says, "Thanks for the feedback." Like John, Susan, Eric, whatever. And like, interesting. Why not just the feedback from everybody immediately? You know, like why is that? Why is the the launching a blog post the feedback moment? It's already too late. They're not going to edit. Why not just? co-write with the crowds yeah that's pretty fascinating like i wrote my book with the on google docs share it and everybody wrote with me wrote the book so i like that that kind of way of, of doing things like crowds i, I really trust and love the crowds now, speaking of twitter you got a lot of questions uh this morning from people on twitter 
uh, one of which was about your book. You know, what's up with MakeBook? And someone asked, is it going to be outdated by the time that it's released? Yeah, no, I'm, it's it's my biggest failure is this book, but it's uh, it's not a failure because it's a great book and it's going to be out at Christmas and it's finally done. Oh, nice. I didn't realize it was so close. No, but I'm I'm really embarrassed about it because it's it's uh it's not how you do things. It's not how you do a pre-order thing. Um, the deadline kept getting extended because I, it's very hard to write a book properly because it's completely different from making a startup where you can change the versions. You can keep changing it. A book is permanent pretty much. So I need to make sure it's really good. And then also I was running these companies while doing this. I was, I've been running companies for two years and a book, it just falls to a lower priority thing. And it's really, and it's, I don't know, it's really bad. It feels bad for me because it's like offending to these people that pay for it. But the thing is, what what's the good thing about it that I have learned all this new stuff. I've, I've done the whole chain of making a startup from idea to building, to launching, to monetizing, to growing, to now automating. Like Nomad is automated, Remote OK is automated, Hoodmaps is automated. They run themselves now, uh, which means I can I can write about the entire chain. And maybe if I exit, if I sell the company before Christmas, I even have the exit part covered. But I don't think we're there yet. There's another question from somebody on Twitter is, is like, what's your end game here? Do you want to automate everything and then just retire? You know, do you want every website that you build to be completely running on its own, or are you just doing this more to like free yourself up to work on new things? Well, I was going to take a few months off in like from one January because it's been like a like I don't know, it's hard to explain. But it's been like a whirlwind from something like April 2015 when I started traveling to now. It's just been insane. Like it's been like there's more stuff happened in these last four years than in 27, 26 years before that. It's just ridiculous what happened. And um, so I think I need a few months off where I'm just like forced not to use the computer or something, but it's very hard to sit still. And I think retiring is very stupid because you get the, you just, you need a goal. You get depressed. Like you either need to have a family as a goal or you need something. You need something to do in your life. You can't just do nothing. You can't just sit. It's, it's, it's going to kill you. Like people, they retire, they get heart attacks because it's just terrible. So I want to work on, I want to keep working on new stuff. And the stuff I work on is a lot of 3D stuff. For example, I scan my whole parents' house and make it made it a VR 2D object, for example. The kind of hacky stuff, I like I like hacking again. Like in the beginning, I could just sit for hours and days working on something that didn't have a monetizable goal. I want to get back to that, like this pure creativity where you just don't care. You just make. I know you've automated already a huge part of Nomad List, but how confident are you really that you can automate the entire thing? Is there any part of you that's afraid that once you walk away, the website won't crash and burn or that something better will come along and require you to come back and update it again? And the reason I ask is because I think the ability to walk away, to put your website on autopilot and have it still generate revenue, is kind of like the whole four-hour work week holy grail. And yet I've talked to so many hundreds of people who started businesses and very few have successfully done that. And so I wonder what your biggest fears are around that, if you have any fears at all. Yeah, I, I think the four-hour work idea is ridiculous because, again, working is important. It's a meaning, You need meaningful expression in your life, whatever that is, even if it's volunteer work, for example. I'm going to try it as an experiment. Um, I won my friend Daniel Lockyer. He's a um, kind of DevOps guy, and he will. He already kind of maintains – like he, he gets alerts if the server's down and he fixes quickly things if I'm not there, for example. But, yeah, it's a big question. Like, how are you going to – like? Is a product ever complete? Like, can it be done? Like VC-backed companies say, no, the product always has to grow bigger and bigger. But what if this is a corner coffee shop where 
I already have the coffee machine that's working fine. I have a person who can maintain the coffee machine. The customers keep coming. It's a growing market. You know, can it work? And that will be the question next year. And I mean, there's a good chance I'll come back to product development. But to be honest, I think this is the side I've always wanted to build. This is everything I needed. It's got countries, cities, regions. It's, it's got planets now. Um, it's got co-working spaces, <laughs> coffee shops. It's got the whole skill of geography, you know. It's got everything there to be a digital nomad. You don't even have to pay for it. It's just all the data there that I ever wanted. And I make decisions on it as well. And you can always go deeper and add more data. But generally, like I don't think maybe that's the right decision. Maybe I shouldn't add any more features. Maybe this is done. And that's a very rare thought I see in people. You know, when I had Tobias Van Schneider on here a few months back, uh, at the end of the episode, I think the trend that I saw and how he kind of carried himself as a founder is that he was very much a contrarian. He just did things sometimes to push people's buttons or to be different. And it ended up working out a lot of the times because he would make products that were very unique and differentiated. And when I look at you and what you're up to as a founder and a bootstrapper, and I try to oversimplify Peter Levels down to, to one thing, I think it's what makes you unique is that you're not afraid to take a leap. You're not afraid to fail and to fail very publicly. And you actually use that possibility to your advantage. So you'll tweet publicly about everything that you're working on, whether it's Makebook or Hood Maps or Nomad List. And you kind of use like the public scrutiny to hold your feet to the fire and make sure that you're motivated to do the things that you say you're going to do. Or even before that, with 12 startups in 12 months, you were blogging about what you were working on well before it was successful and you had no idea if it was going to turn out all right. And you even have, I think, the number one comment on the Indie Hackers Forum. A while back, somebody was asking a question related to mental health. They're basically asking how they can overcome the fact that they don't have enough confidence to really launch something new. And I think that anxiety affects a lot of founders who aren't sure what they're going to do if they end up failing. And your response was that you are a big fan of exposure therapy. You force yourself to confront the thing that scares you the most, and it's horrible, and you're afraid, and it sucks. But then later on, you can look back at that experience and say, you know, I survived that, and so maybe whatever I'm facing now is a little bit less scary. And I think that really exemplified who you are as a person. But there's a big problem with that because exposure therapy is very scary. Like it's literally it's the fastest way to solve your your fear, but it's the most it's that's but you're scared. That's the whole problem. So you fix your problem by by going into your problem. But it's it's terrible, right? It's terribly scary, and that's why nobody's doing it. So instead of so, what fear does, I think you see this in a lot of areas. Like again, dating is a big one, but but people start. This is a very good, very good example. This is this scene, and I don't really like it. The, the pickup artist scene. It started like ten years ago. I think it died out. But there was a very good example of people that are so scared to approach boys or girls. I think generally girls that they would try and f read forums and pay money for courses and read theories and stuff about how to do it. When actually, no, it just you woke up to a human, you talk to them, and maybe they like you, maybe they don't. That's it. It's very simple. But it's very scary, I know, because it's rejection. You know, I'm not super great at it either. But there's, fear has a, has, a, has a way to steer you away from the problem. And because, the, the you know, it's like least resistance. The least resistance path is... Not fix your problem, but read about it, <laughs> read about solutions, not actually do them, buy courses, get coaches and mentors, ECDs and startups too. Don't actually build a startup, but just read about it. And that doesn't help, I think. Generally, it doesn't really help. I mean, definitely, if there's a clinical problem, you need to go see a doctor, right? But generally, like with startups, you just need to ship and then the action will give you the information. And for me, the startup world is very 
like a metaphor, like, you know, like a swimming pool. There's a lot of people standing next to the swimming pool. There's, there's like two swimming actually. And they're just like shutting up and swimming. And the rest is like talking like, Hey man, like, um, how do you, how do you swim? Like what happens? And all the guys are like, well, I think like I've heard somewhere, I've read somewhere you need to like move your arms. <laughs> but, and then the other guy's like, no, 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 you don't need to move your arms. You need to like actually use your legs to stay afloat. And everyone's talking. And then one, one person's like, did anybody ever swim here? It's like, well, those two are swimming, but we're not. But, you know, I've read a lot about it. So, yeah. And then there's another person just jumping in. And they'll just learn to swim about, while jumping in. They're just Because otherwise you die. And it's the same with startups. If you don't make money, well, you go bankrupt. So the easiest way is to jump in the pool and try not to drown. Yeah, and I think the upside here is that unlike swimming, well, don't get me wrong. If your startup fails, it's going to suck. Like, you're going to feel that for a long time, and it's not a good feeling. But you're not literally dead. It's not the end of the world. You're not going to drown, and that's it. That was yeah. your one shot. You can't no. go back and do it again. <laughs> it's a little extreme. Yeah. But the next time yes. around won't be as scary because no, you did it's it. A, it's a very, I have very extreme metaphors, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Same <laughs> thing with Twitter. You know, if you're trying to build an audience, like, and you you put your personal stuff out there, and you give it a shot, and like someone says something negative about it, you're gonna live to tweet another day, and now you're a little bit stronger. Yeah, I think what you have is a swimming pool metaphor, and then you have the swim. What do you call it? the swim guard? The, the swimming pool guard and the lifeguard. He has this fit, this big stick where he can the lifeguard. Sorry, and he can use the stick to catch you up, and then you can swim a little bit more and slowly learn it. And I think you do have that with starters as well, and but you got to jump in the pool, man. You can't just wait your whole life standing next to the pool just watching. Like, if you want to swim, you got to swim. You got to jump in. All right. And so maybe we'll end on a more positive note rather than talking about anxiety and such. And let's, let me ask you to picture, you know, maybe one of your followers or maybe uh, an indie hackers reader out there who's considering getting into business. And they've heard this whole episode. They've heard our advice about, you know, just jumping. But, you know, maybe they're still stuck. What, what is your biggest you know, thing that you would say to someone in that situation and how do you think they can get over the hump and actually start their company? Well, this sounds really stupid, but it's the same thing I said before, like you, you need to do it. And it sounds really basic, but you need to uh, get, in, get in the pool or get on the bicycle and just try and you will fail and you will keep failing and then you will keep, 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 keep failing. And then one day it might work, maybe not my work, but I think you're reading about it. Although indie hackers, sorry, that's, that's <laughs> indie hackers can be very inspirational. But there's a time and place for indie hackers, which is I, I will give you 10% of your day you can be an indie hackers, but I want you to ship for 90% of the day when you're working, right? Like you, you can't, there's something called startup porn and um, you can't read too much and listen too much, too many podcasts. You, got, you can't replace action with, with consuming media about startups. You have to act, which is developing, making. And I would also advise, do it yourself. You know, there's a, everybody's hiring. You don't have money for it. Just do it yourself. Things are not that hard. You don't have to be, like, if you want to buy, learn to bicycle, you don't have to be Lance Armstrong. You don't have to be the best. Just, you know, don't fall. <laughs> That's good enough. You know, I'm not a very good designer. I'm very average. Uh, I'm not a very good programmer. I can do everything a little bit. I think generalism, being a journalist is great. But, yeah, don't uh, be inspired and then do and, and don't just get caught up in this whole vicious cycle of inspiration and talking about stuff. But we, need to, we all need to do more things and be less, be less scared. Just do. I cannot agree more. I need to do more things myself. Anyway, Peter, thanks a ton for coming on the show. We had like a super long episode. Hopefully 
Uh, you don't have too many things that you're late for. Can you tell people where they can go to find out more about uh, you personally and about all the different projects that you're working on? Yeah, so my main website is called Nomad List. It's N-O-M-A-D list.com. That's my main website. My blog is levels.io. And on Twitter, my username is levels.io. And, uh, you know, I tweet everything. As I said, it might be fun. It might be uh, intense, but at least it's real. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Like, there's probably like a hundred questions <laughs> people in the audience wanted to hear that we didn't get to, but like, maybe I can have you on another time, or maybe you we can need like a part two, yeah, part two, or maybe you could come co-host the show sometime. I think that'd be pretty fun. Yeah. Is there going to be Indie Hackers video at some point? Ah, man, that's just so much work. Like, there, I think there they could be, be super cool. but I would have to outsource, <laughs> outsource as much of that as possible. Yeah, I'd love to be on Indie Hackers video the first episode. Indie Hackers TV. That's oh, it. I'll remember that. Andy Akers TV episode one, Peter yeah. Levels. <laughs> Next time you're yeah. in SF, stop thanks by. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yes, for sure. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and they really help other people to discover the show. So thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the IndieHackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's IndieHackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.